Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Dude Spillings, back in the hot seat, coming to you from Austin, Texas. You must be hip, slick, and cool since you moved to Austin, Texas. Oh, wait, you were born and raised there and saw everybody come in and infiltrate your cool town. What is that like? I mean, come on, this place is now the, the world headquarters. Every time I send an email or, or hear from somebody, they say, I'm about to move to Austin, or I just did, the, the latest one being Dr. Paul Saladino. Yeah, it's, it's been great seeing Austin grow like it is and, and really um, make its mark on the map. You know, I, when I was a kid, literally, uh, I mean, people won't believe this, but when I was a kid, uh, you know, we, we would travel to see relatives and stuff. And I would tell people, yeah, I'm from Austin. And they would say, Austin, where? Where, <laughs> where is that? Like they literally didn't know. And, and, and I would even say, we would even say, oh, it's the capital of Texas. And because of the, remember the TV show Dallas in the 80s? They would, people would always respond, oh, I thought Dallas was the capital. Right. Yeah. Like LA, uh, San Francisco, San Diego. Oh, nope. Sacramento. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Now it's not only the capital of Texas, but the capital of uh, progressive health, ancestral health, paleo living. And it's kind of a utopia in many ways, but I know probably some of the characters changed. And I, I wonder if there's, you know, a, a give and take here when you have that explosion of popularity, kind of like Boulder or in smaller cases, uh, Portland or Bend, Oregon, where, you know, it, it, once upon a time, it was kind of like a hick town. And now all the, all the cool people live there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to me overall, it's a net positive. Um, because there are people like Saladino and um, oh, who else recently moved here? Uh, I think Tim Ferriss moved here. And uh, uh, there's a, a number of people who, who have moved here in health and wellness. Uh, so to me, you know, it's a net plus and, you know, there's things like paleo effects, which are amazing and keto FX and all the others. I mean, it's, it's, it's really fun to be here and there's, and then on top of that, there's dozens of meetups and small groups and, you know, CrossFit boxes. There's CrossFit box every, there's many as CrossFit boxes as our Starbucks in Austin. <laughs> so you and I, man, we like to go at it over the email, phone, text, and, and stay abreast of all the cool things. And you're my go-to guy for so many things because you have the aptitude to, to distill that research and then put it into action with your personal life. So uh, the, the all things health with dude spellings is underway. And we have so many cool things to talk about from the, uh, the, the past months of uh, engagement, uh, but those past months also happened to be the time of the quarantine of the planet. And so I thought we should start there with how you've taken this opportunity uh, to become a, a fitness freak and implement this micro workouts concept, being, being working at home and being, uh, you know, locked without the travel and the usual hectic life. It's yeah. gone well. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been really cool uh, for me because I've been able to you know, the, I, I would, I would say like the, 
the uh, wellness wisdom that you get from people in the space about being an office worker is that, oh, you need to get up and move every hour, right? Sure, and, sure. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, when you're in your, in an office, like I normally, my office is in a 12 story office building in, in the domain. Um, and, uh, in that setting where I'm working with a bunch of other people and, you know, I'm in a row of 15 other desks and on the other side is another row of 15 desks. And, you know, when you're in that, that type of setting, you don't, if you're going to, if you're going to get up and move every hour, you know, you're going to walk around the floor, right? Maybe you're going to walk, like I, I walk the flight of stairs every once in a while, right? But I'm not going to swing kettlebells and I'm not going to do pull-ups <laughs> and, you know. So now being at home, I realize, right, while I'm quarantined and working from home, I can, I can finally do what I've always wanted to do, which is actually do a micro-workout every hour and so it took me a while to sort of refine what i'm doing uh so i set my timer on my phone for an hour countdown and then every hour i just do uh 30 push-ups 10 pull-ups uh either um i've got the x3 bar so i i either do the banded deadlifts or squats. I kind of mix that up. Um, and, uh, maybe some, uh, curls or tricep stuff. And, you know, that takes five, six minutes. It doesn't take any time, but it's a much better workout than, you know, walking around the floor every hour. And when you accumulate that over the day, Right. I'm now, and, and by the way, it's, it, you also see like uh, it, the, the incremental changes are super tangible when you're just, like, you know, you can see your, your workout progress when you work out daily. When you work out hourly, <laughs> you make gains, man. And, um, and I, I really kind of modeled the whole thing over uh, uh, Pavel Tatsulin's. Uh, grease the groove philosophy. So if you want, if listeners want more information on that, you can just uh, Google Pavel and grease the groove. And his whole theory is that instead of doing a workout three days a week where you're, let's just take chin-ups for example, right? So most people, let's say you can do eight to 10 pull-ups, that's your max, right? Uh, so instead of doing three sets of eight to 10, or let's just, for easy three sets of 10, right? So that's 30 chin-ups in a day. You do that three times a week. That's 90 chin-ups for the week. He says, cut it down to five. So you're only doing half your maximum, but do them several times throughout the day, right? So now if you're doing uh, a set of five, eight times a day, that's 40 a day on a five-day work week is 200 chin-ups. Instead of 90. Right. And instead of, instead of 90, where that 90 is arguably going to trash you more than the bits and pieces approach. And what's interesting to me is it seems like we have um, some critical mass here because Pavel has been talking about this stuff. Uh, his associate, Dr. Craig Marker, with his landmark post hit versus hurt, 
talking about the destructive effects of these long, exhausting workouts. And then we were uh, sharing that video uh, from Fira Sahabi, the famed MMA trainer who was talking on Joe Rogan about how he doesn't want his athletes ever getting sore. Dr. Phil Maffetone said the exact same thing. So it seems like we're transitioning away from this fitness model of decades long, which has been go into the sweat house, the house of pain, and do your thing with your badass instructor or your uh, community atmosphere in the rah-rah, and you go to CrossFit and people are cheering for the person as they, as they do more reps than they've ever done before, which is uh, you know, not, not to throw that all out, but the idea that fitness can be uh, a kinder, gentler approach seems to be one of the greatest breakthroughs I've seen in my lifetime in the fitness scene because it eliminates that huge risk of breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury that anyone who's had any serious uh, ambitions in fitness has suffered from at one point or another. Totally. And, and I, I've witnessed this firsthand now. I've been, we've been quarantined for, I think, going on 12 weeks now. Um, yeah. It's at least 10. Yeah, middle and, of March. Yeah. And we're recording here in the middle of May, so end of May, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Well, they told us at uh, Verbo, it was like eight weeks and that was just several weeks ago. So it's been a while. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, the point is like over this time period, um, I haven't been sore. Like I I haven't been sore. And I, and so I mentioned, I I do 30 pushups every hour. I didn't start at 30. Mm -hmm. Right. I I started at 20 Mm -hmm. and I was able to, um, bump it up to, uh, you know, 25 and then to 30 and, um, at lunch. So another thing I'm doing, uh, you know, I've seen all these studies referenced, uh, about vitamin D and immunity. And I think, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick actually mentioned this on Joe Rogan a few days ago, that there's this association between high vitamin D and strong immunity. And so since I've been at home, one of the things I've been doing at, at lunch is I take a lap around my apartment complex with my shirt off and get vitamin D here in the, the strong Texas sun. And every uh, lap that I make, I'll do uh, 30 push ups and 15 squat jumps. Mm. And um, let me tell you, when I first started doing squat jumps, man, I was so sore the next day. Cause I, cause I never do those. So that's definitely, um, added some, some, a bonus there. But, uh, you know, when I started doing those, I, I was actually only doing 15 pushups every lap and now I'm up to, to 30 and with virtually no pain. Now the squat jumps, there was pain because I had never been doing them. <laughs> right. I think the muscle soreness comes from, uh, doing anything unfamiliar is going to generate a little soreness. And then from the eccentric nature of certain movements, right? Those are the two uh, sources of muscle soreness. Yeah. And uh, boy, this has been such an eye opener for me because I, I get sore so frequently lifting heavy weights or doing sprint workouts. And now, you know, studying the message that these, these great people are putting out and seeing the results that people like you are getting, uh, I'm, I'm seeing the beauty of kind of toning down that competitive instinct and that desire to go and kick ass and high five yourself and write down in your log something impressive that you just achieved uh, in, in favor of 
kind of being more uh, more gentle and more consistent so that you don't have these long periods like I can look back at my training log from from running days triathlon and even as a old man masters athlete and avid speed golfer and high jumper you know there's blank periods where I didn't do deadlifting for nine days because I I strained my glute doing something like sprint workout because I went crazy and when you have those fall offs then building back up you get sore again <laughs> and you're yeah. you're dealing with more soreness so uh listeners have heard me talk about my morning routine, which uh, it started out as a 12-minute core exercises and leg flexibility mobility drills. But now I keep adding on new things to the extent that it's extending out to like uh, 30, 40, 45 minutes of just sequential uh, movements with the mini bands now, of course, the baseline stretching routine. And so that, like you wrote in your email, I should quote you here because you said... um, your your idea here is how much work can your body do and remain in that calm parasympathetic restful state rather than kicking into sympathetic the best example would be if i uh listener if i came over to your house right now put a gun to your head and said hey we're going to run a marathon guess what you would kick into sympathetic state and you would cross the finish line of a marathon no matter what but it would be at extreme cost but how much can you do as sort of your baseline where it's nothing uh, the Carol Fit bike that uh, we've talked about, their advertising on their website has the guy uh, doing the eight-minute workout in a suit because their worklet, workout template is eight minutes. We do a couple big sprints, you cool down, and you don't even sweat because eight minutes is not long enough to break a sweat. And so if you can kind of, I guess, uh, like you wrote, you know, stay under the radar, but achieve these uh, you know, cumulative fitness goals boy, here's your, here's your, um, the end of dude's normal day, 350 push-ups, a hundred pull-ups, 150 jump squats, 50 deadlifts and walking two miles. I guess that's a few trips around the complex. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's big time. I mean, uh, you're, then you're timesing that by five or six or seven. It's, uh, you must've had some great fitness breakthroughs in the last few months. Well, I mean, no, that no contests actually test them, you know, but right. yeah, you're undefeated uh, throughout the quarantine. Yeah. But, but I will say, um, uh, I don't know if I've covered on, on the podcast before, even told you in person before, but I have a torn labrum in my right shoulder and, um, I've had that since 2013 and, uh, I'm supposed to actually, actually supposed to have, um, surgery on it in 2013 and went to Pebble beach instead. But, hey, fair uh, excuse. Right. But uh, a good friend of mine talked me out of the surgery and said, you should just do PT and uh, massage therapy and stuff um, until you actually really need the surgery. And so it's been seven years. And uh, because, I think it's because of the pull-ups, actually. Because I'm doing all these pull-ups, I actually have a lot less shoulder pain now. And on that note, um, about how much, how much rest can you do and stay parasympathetic? I wrote that to you cause I knew what, that you would know what that meant. I was describing this to someone the other day and, and what I, the way I said it was how much work can you do at rest? Right? So if you, if you think about our, think about it primally, right? Our primal hunter gatherer, ancestors 
their idea of rest was really kind of like wandering around foraging for food and climbing up on top of rocks and uh, maybe climbing, climbing trees to get a piece of fruit, you know? So rest for them was uh, significantly more strenuous than sitting at a desk in front of a computer. So I'm kind of like, if you can raise that minimum level of work that you're doing when you're at rest, uh, it just makes you that much more resilient. Well, if you extend that out to the elite, the world of elite athletics, and from my experience on the triathlon circuit, uh, an easy day for the for the leading athletes would be something that's a phenomenal achievement to the recreational enthusiasts. But it was literally a recovery or a moderate day to go and ride the bike 50 miles, swim two miles, and run an easy six at the proper heart rates. And I think, uh, I guess now they're calling it polarized training where you're trying to uh, not drift into these middle ground where the, the day was kind of tough and then tomorrow's kind of tough and then the next day is kind of tough. So to keep that, that workout stimulus low, um, I feel like that's, that's where the magic is, is that when you do go out and, and bust loose when, when there's a new event on the calendar or you have a really uh, distinct uh, workout effort where you're going to the CrossFit class or whatever it is that you like to do, um, you're going to launch from this much higher platform because now, um, you know, the new normal is 350 push-ups a day. You're not going to be uh, super sore when you go do your adventure race. Right. Um, and, and, you know, just so the key is though to, to that you do, you know, people hear things like Maffetone and grease the groove and they think, Oh, those are wimpy, easy workouts. Right. But the key is, you do want to kind of push yourself just ever so incrementally, right? So, you know, I didn't start out doing 350 push-ups a day, right? I started out doing more like 150. Which and at the time was a was pretty good, good challenge. Me. Yeah. It's, it's more than you did in 2014 or whenever you weren't doing this stuff. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, it's, when, when we're talking about doing, you know, a quote unquote easy workout, we're not saying don't make gains, right? It's just that the gains don't come like uh, gangbusters like they do when you're out, you know, doing your max every other week. Uh, yeah, that's a good distinction because I will now reflect on my morning routine. Uh, of course, I'm locked into this mode. I haven't missed it in three and a half years, but it ain't easy. And it keeps me uh, honest because I wake up in the morning and I know I got to go hit these sequences. And every time it's, it's pretty much of a challenge. I mean, the core is activated for like 12 minutes straight and at the end you're burning. And I'm familiar with it every single morning. Uh, but I think it's been criticized or taken out of, misinterpreted in the past where uh, the, the, the fitness uh, dogma that you have to keep mixing things up and doing things different. Otherwise, your muscles will get used to it and it's no longer a challenge. Well, guess what? If you could do 350 push-ups, 100 pull-ups, 150 jump squats every day for the rest of your life, 
I don't think you're going to be complaining. And I think that's going to be an all around double thumbs up. So this constant quest to do better and to one up your last workout. And I'm the first person to admit that, man, I get so excited when I go do a high jump session or I'm, I'm training for uh, the 400 meters and I, and I want to get a faster time than my previous workout. And my mindset's always been, well, that's how you improve. But now we, we need to call that into question and, and realize that um, just being patient and consistent over time may predict improvement better than trying to be a badass and set PRs, uh, you know, every third time that you go into the, into the gym. Yeah. The, the key word that I think you said there is patience. And I think that's something that Americans <laughs> in general kind of need to work on. I mean, we're all kind of trained by marketing and culture mm. to that, you know, you, you need to fix right now for whatever's ailing you. If you, you know, you don't like your car. Oh, just go buy a new one. We got 0% financing. You get it today. You don't, you know, same with, um, you know, you go to the doctor and like, Oh, your, your back is sore. Let's just shoot up with cortisol. That'll make it feel better right away. Right. Don't worry about the exercises and strengthening your core and making everything stronger. Just shoot it up and you'll feel great. You know? And so we're kind of, that's, that's what that, that movie, I don't know if you've seen that movie, the magic pill on Netflix. Uh, it's on my list, man. But Tell yeah, that, that's basically what it's about. It's like everyone wants the magic pill. Oh, no patience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, don't like your town, move to Austin. <laughs> Everything will be wonderful there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I guess, um, the lack of patience, I'm, I'm now I'm psychoanalyzing myself since I'm, I'm on with dude spelling. So was always a big help there. Uh, but when I was a triathlete, I love competing. I love traveling. I loved having this compelling goal, but I can't say I was in love with the all day monotonous training in the three events, swim, bike, run. So I reference a lot of times where I wanted to find a, a hack or a shortcut to get better quickly rather than just being patient and being content to pedal around at the proper heart rates. I wanted to go do an epic mountain climb of eight hours and then uh, come home through the door, put a check mark in my training log and say that now I'm a better cyclist for forevermore. And that's a really high risk approach. And I think uh, forget about the uh, elite consequences, but for the average person who has that well-intentioned trip to the gym to sign up and get into a program and get their chart from their trainer and, and go through these motions. But by and large, they're getting pushed too hard. And then yep. we're sitting in an office for 10 hours a day instead of getting up and taking two flights of stairs like dude does even when you're in the office building. Yeah. And, and I, I, would, I would add to that, you know, people's own motivation, right? So a lot of times when people, uh, are starting a fitness program, right? They're coming from a place where they're unhappy about their fitness level. So they're like super motivated to go out and like hammer hard, right? Oh, I'm really tired of this extra weight. I'm going to hammer out. I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to be thin in no time. The faster and harder I work out, the thinner I'm going to be. And, um, that's, it's just a recipe for your, your favorite, um, cliche, uh, throw it in here now, uh, burnout, uh, say it, go ahead. Breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. Yes. Bam, 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 bam. 
Okay. Well, speaking of that, if we, if we make a transition into the, the diet aspect, I want to ask you what you think of um, Jason Fung's assertion, which has been sitting with me for many weeks now. I can't stop thinking about it. But in his book, The Obesity Code, he says that uh, excess body fat is 95% a consequence of your insulin production rather than your activity level or any other factors. Uh, Mark Sisson has long said that body composition is 80% diet and 20% lifestyle being exercise, sleep, stress levels, things like that. Um, and it's kind of a, uh, a mind-blowing insight to, to think of how big those numbers are when so many of us are socialized to think, uh, I'm getting a little extra, I'm getting a little thick, I need to go work out more, is the immediate uh, you know, association there, which is now arguably uh, being being you know, being completely challenged and refuted. Oh, I, I think it's, I think it's totally uh, within the realm of reason to, to say that. And if, if you listen to Gary Tops, uh, he's got some great talks on YouTube and it's, he covers this in his book, Why We Get Fat. Um, and his hypothesis is that, um, you know, hormones is what determines how you grow, not, um, with not your diet. And in my own personal experience, uh, I think that's totally true. You know, as you know, last year I, I did the Grand Canyon run, 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 right? So I was running, uh, leading up to that, I was running 80 miles a week. Oof. And yeah. And uh, so that, and really from, I would, I ran it in May, almost exactly a year ago. And, uh, I really started ramping up my miles in January, right? So from January to May, I was doing tons and tons and tons of miles, right? Burning tons of calories. And uh, pretty much after that is when I got divorced and, and my life changed uh, quite dramatically. And we sold our house and moved and everything. So all my training just really stopped. Now, I, I have not really changed my diet hardly at all, but I haven't gained any weight. Uh, I haven't gained any weight from the guy who was on the South Rim of the Grand Canyon facing 50 miles in top shape. You're the same body composition now. Well, actually from all the pushups and and, and pull-ups, I'm I'm probably more muscular, right? So I probably am a little heavier, but I don't have, I would, and I, I don't measure my body fat, but I don't look, when I look in the mirror, I don't look like I'm, I have more body fat. Uh, so listeners, what's happening here is this compensation theory where that dude who was running 80 miles a week was eating more food as a consequence because you spiked your appetite because you were burning so many calories. Yeah, I, I was eating a little more because just when I was hungry, but overall, uh, yeah, I would say quantities might have changed a little bit, but overall, like what I'm eating hasn't changed, right? I'm still eating paleo. I'm still uh, eating lot, lots of steak, um, lots of uh, uh, Texas fish, barbecue. Lots of I had ale, I had ale from Austin, microbrewery. Yeah, um, viewers on YouTube can see that. Oh, you know, so that's uh, that's interesting. I mean, we're, we're you know the uh, the same book, the Obesity Code, was citing research that even if you uh, increase your caloric intake, your body's going to find ways to adjust, like thermic effect, where you're a little running a little bit hotter temperature to where you burn more calories. So yeah, you know, it's it's sort of um, 
interesting to think about. Here's all the different variables. Eat less, exercise more. and doesn't work. Um, eat more, exercise less. Probably not a big deal. It's going to be hard to add body fat unless you uh, change your macronutrients and start eating more carbs, producing more insulin. Yeah. You know, there's, I forget where I saw this, um, but there was an, oh, I know where I saw this. It was in a uh, PBS show that was on recently called, uh, I forget, The Story of Fat or something like that. But it was on very, like just a month ago. And they actually um, cited this study where these guys went and um, studied, like in the field, went to the Hadza in Africa, the Hadza tribe, mm. one of the last known modern hunter-gatherer tribes. Like they still live like people did 10,000 years ago. And they studied these people and, and measured what they ate and tried to see like what their daily caloric intake was. Now the hypothesis before they went was that, Oh, these obese Americans are eating 2,500 to 3000 calories a day. And therefore, and not, and not doing the amazing amount of physical exertion that, that a hunter gatherer would do. Therefore that's why they're fat. But what they found out was like, Holy crap the Hadza are actually eating about 2,500 calories a day, even though they're walking 12 miles a day to forage and hunt. But they weren't gaining weight because, or I'm sorry, they weren't, uh, you know, as heavy as Americans, um, but they were able to do tons more uh, work because of this, the compensation theory that you're talking about, right? They, they just, because their body demands it, they're just that much more efficient with their calories that they do have. Well, they're also, we're also bumping up against this upper limit of caloric expenditure, no matter what. And so if you apply this compensation theory to the classic example of the athlete who wakes up on Saturday morning and does a hard 60 mile bike ride, and then they come home and they hang out on the couch and they watch sports or they watch tapes of previous sporting events in the case of present time. Uh, But their, their metabolic rate goes down and their level of laziness goes up and their caloric expenditure goes up in compensation for that badass 60 mile bike ride in the hills. And it's sort of an even swap for, let's say the same person waking up and uh, getting the, getting the call to go uh, do some mild gardening in the yard, walk the dog uh, through the park for a couple miles, eat a reasonable amount of food rather than pound the, the pints of Ben and Jerry's after the 60 mile bike ride. And then it all comes out in the wash where uh, it's an even caloric expenditure from the mildly active day versus the crazy ass workout that has that compensatory effect of making you feel like a blob. And I can totally relate to that from, you know, triathlon training. Uh, you know, the agenda was just crazy all day with these hours and hours of workouts. But if I wasn't working out, I guarantee you I was horizontal or near horizontal. 
for for a great for the nine years of my life that I raced on the pro circuit, and so that one's kind of a mind blower too because I think we can all reference how the more active you are with whatever distinct thing you did, ran the marathon, right. uh, did the bike ride, you come home and you're you're dead to the world. Um, and so the, the Hadza are doing like mile low level activity throughout the day and then, you know, resting more, sleeping more, all those kind of things. Yeah. And to our point that we were talking about earlier, right. Their at rest state is all this mild work all day long of walking however many miles they do to, to gather food. So I guess the takeaway insight is that maybe we should prioritize these micro workouts, this objective to keep moving throughout the day and avoid those periods of stillness over and above the obligation to go in there and sweat like crazy and push yourself to the extent of getting sore. Whereas the world's leading fitness experts are now saying, don't get sore. I'm listening very carefully to that and trying to figure out how to, how to solve this equation rather than continuing to battle because muscle soreness is basically, it's a bad science, a sign that you overdid it. Yeah. I think that, so sort of a, like a one liner takeaway, I think you, you could say is, uh, you want to get to the point where you can do a whole lot of work and not be sore. Right. And there's, so, um, you, you just reminded me of Kipchoge. Oh yeah. You know, the, the greatest endurance athlete, the, the greatest distance runner the planet's ever seen, the guy that broke two hours in the marathon and the, he reported, he published his training log on the internet. So the, the, the tech geeks could scrutinize the pace and make calculations on percentage of uh, maximum VO2 max. And it turns out this guy is just a machine who's motoring along week in and week out, but always well within his capabilities. So he's never trashing himself, even though he's trying to uh, push the barriers of human performance to a place that no one's ever been and breaking two hours in the marathon, the greatest example He's always within himself and he's never doing what most recreational or competitive runners around America are doing routinely, which is to get that overuse shin splints or the sciatica flaring up again, or just the fatigue and the burnout from, uh, you know, getting in the wrong pack on the Tuesday night running group and trashing yourself. So, boy, these are pretty strong messages that we can have that kind or gentle approach to quote someone from Austin and uh, succeed with our fitness goals. And then in your case, like, uh, forget it, we've just been talking about fitness and fitness progress, but the fact that you get your butt up from your desk and do something every hour, I mean, even if it was something as simple as uh, walking Sadie around the block and not doing any athletic things, you're getting a huge benefit in fat metabolism, cognitive performance when you do sit back down at your computer. And there's tons of research to validate that too. Yeah, th uh, that's, that's an, a great point. And then added benefit from that too is, um, you know, going outside and getting some uh, natural sunlight mm -hmm. and limiting the blue light exposure from the computer and, you know, all of, all of that also, I think adds a, uh, quite a bit of uh, health benefits. Okay, you made another transition since uh, those of us watching on YouTube see this wonderful orange reddish glow to dude spellings yeah. from his dope indoor lighting system. 
so you you went in there and changed out the the typical bulbs that we illuminate our our indoor life with. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that topic on on the basic level to get people inspired to you know go grab a Himalayan salt lamp or switch out the white light bulbs with the orange ones and why that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a lot to this. So I'm going to try to uh, to hit a lot of the different points. So the basics, most people probably know, especially if they're into the primal lifestyle. Uh, so the basic is that the way the human body's supposed to work is that in the morning, you wake up and see the sunshine and there's blue light in that sunshine. Morning sunlight has the highest amount of blue light. The blue light hits your eyes and sends a signal to, to your brain to turn off melatonin, the sleep hormone, and turn on cortisol to wake you up a little bit. Now, interestingly, and where this fits in with Jason Fung, is that uh, blue light also, blue light by itself without food raises blood sugar, right? And they think this is all documented. You check it out. It's, it's, if you want to Google it, it's called the dawn phenomenon. Uh, but they think that the reason that this happens, right, is to if you're an early hunter-gatherer and you wake up and you're hungry, you need a little bit of blood sugar to get going to get your next meal, right? That's how it's supposed to work. But the problem today is that uh, modern indoor lighting and screens have four times more blue light than, than morning sunlight. So we're all staring at these screens all day long and underneath these, in, these indoor lights. And we are uh, not only screwing up our cortisol and melatonin balance, right? And you're not making enough melatonin uh, later in the day for proper sleep, uh, but you're also raising blood sugar, right? And that's why this, the, like the, the modern office setting with all these indoor fluorescent lights, dual monitors at every workstation, <laughs> And the high carb uh, snack machine is so uh, brutal, right? It's because you're already raising the blood sugar with the with the blue light, and then the only food that you really have is some crappy stuff that's going to raise your blood sugar even even higher. Raise well, blood sugar, you raise insulin. Yep. You get fat. Yep. You get Absolutely. tired, cranky, all that stuff. Independent of your dietary choices, and then you mentioned the the vending machine as exacerbating, but even without that, the light is such a big problem for for metabolic function. Yeah, so another another thing that is um, quite fascinating is that uh, blue light and EMF actually uh, liberate vitamin A, retinol, and uh, what that does is it... Uh, lowers uh, your um, B vitamins. Oof. And and I believe this is really why everyone is um, uh, testing positive for the MTHFR uh, polymorphism that's supposed to, uh, you know, the, the way that they measure this a lot of times is they measure your either your vitamin B levels or your homocysteine. And if your vitamin B is low or your homocysteine is high, then they surmise, they conclude that you have this methylation problem and that you can't 
uh, metabolize or uh, make methylated B vitamins, right? And Methylation they- is the chemical reactions that is, uh, for example, making the uh, nutrient that you need. Is that how you would describe that? Uh, I'm not a chemist and I'm terrible at describing this stuff, but the way that I understand it is that, so a methyl group is a, um, it's a description of a specific molecule in the body. Uh, I, I forget exactly what it is. It's a certain number of carbons and hydrogens and so on. Um, but this methyl group in the body is used for lots of different processes. And one of the processes it's used for is for turning folate into methylfolate and the body and, and that they call the methylfolate, the active form of, of the B vitamin. And that's the one that your body actually uses. Right. And, uh, vitamin A, when vitamin A is liberated in the body, it, um, it destroys, uh, methyl B. And so I think that's, that's why everybody's showing up at the functional medicine doctor's offices mm. with low, low B and high homocysteine. And then everybody is getting prescribed these methyl B vitamins. It's because of all the blue light and the, the non-native EMF that we're exposed Oof. to. Yeah. Right. So if we wanted to take some corrective action here, uh, and to, just to be uh, to clarify, when, when we're talking about blue light, and people throw that term around so much, I finally looked it up because I'm like, well, it's white, isn't it? it it's white out of a white light bulb or a white screen when you're you're blasting your eyes at night. But blue is the um, the, the most easily scattered uh, spectrum on the on the uh, on the UV spectrum, and that's why the ocean looks blue, Lake Tahoe looks blue, the sky looks blue, because that's what scatters the easiest of all the different wavelengths. And some of them are invisible, right? Uh, yeah. But then when we get to the um, orange, red, yellow, um, these wavelengths are less offensive to our hormonal mechanisms because they um, they uh, they don't have um, that that damaging potential that uh, mimic direct sunlight during the day when it's supposed to be nighttime. Well, so what you're what you're really referencing there is um, something called the photoelectric effect, mm. which is something that Einstein uh, discovered, and uh, really all it um, it is it, it says is that uh, high energy light, which blue light would qualify. Uh, can, is able to interact with electrons. And that's really how all of this process has happened in the body is that, that the, the high energy blue light fiddles with the electrons and the bonds in the body and it can actually break down some of the bonds in, in some of these uh, uh, vitamins and minerals and stuff that you need and that's why it affects you. So the morning sunlight is ideal because we get the hormonal boost, the energy boost, the blood sugar boost, which is uh, a desirable. The, the cortisol spike is desirable upon the rising of the sun because that's going to tee us up for a busy day. Um, the serotonin goes up to the mood elevating hormone in the morning in response to direct sunlight, ideally, or one of those fake uh, bulbs you can get if you're in Scandinavia all winter long, which are highly effective, right? The, yeah. the artificial uh, UV enhanced uh, blue light machines to help with seasonal affective disorder. But for most of us, 
getting out, exposing our eyeballs to direct sunlight kicks off a, a busy, healthy, productive day until yep. <laughs> then we start getting into trouble. Well, I mean, this, the, the beauty of creation is really magnificent. So all this stuff that you're talking about is true. Um, but one of the things that is, that's so fascinating is that a, so you need melatonin to go to sleep, right? And everyone thinks that you make melatonin at night. You don't make melatonin at night. You release melatonin at night. Melatonin is actually made from serotonin. And serotonin is made when you are exposed to sunlight. So you're actually making the building blocks for the melatonin that's going to put you to sleep when you're in the sunlight in the daytime. It's pretty fascinating. So the serotonin is a precursor to melatonin. Right. Get that serotonin boost in the daytime. Now I'm referencing um, Dr. Robert Lustig's book, The Hacking of the American Mind, where, where he talks about how our intense pleasure-seeking modern life uh, is hitting the dopamine pathways in the brain to the extent that our pursuit of instant gratification floods those dopamine pathways and down-regulates the serotonin pathways so that we don't even have the ability to sustain an elevated mood and a, a sense of well-being, just a, a sense of calmness and well-being because we're going for the, the quick hits that dopamine provides. This is kind of an aside, but it's just yeah. fascinating to me because um, you know he's listing that the, the key dopamine triggers are uh, hyperconnectivity, especially social media, uh, sugar, alcohol, street drugs, prescription antidepressants, uh, uh, internet porn and video games are particularly disturbing uh, combo there because they they just flood the, the young human with instant gratification to the extent that they lose their drive and desire to uh, pursue challenges and persevere through difficulties, which are serotonin boosting activities, which is sort of equated with a life well lived, a life of uh, you know uh, deep meaning and contentment. And so, well, flooded it, with dopamine, we're like we're like zombies walking around. Yeah, and and if you have listened to Jordan Peterson and his talk about the the um, uh, dominance hierarchy and how. Um, it's your level of serotonin that determines where you are in the dominance hierarchy. Oh. Right? And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, that, the thing that you just noticed is pretty amazing is that we're trading uh, dopamine for, or we're, we're trading serotonin for dopamine, right? And it's a much less um, sustainable way to go about it. Now, one, another tiny aside there, one interesting thing in there, you mentioned um, street drugs raised dopamine, and most of them do, but one that doesn't is actually weed, right? Weed doesn't, it, weed is not dopaminergic. Weed it works on the cannabinoid system and not, not the dopamine system. Not, I'm not, advoca I'm not advocating <laughs> be a pothead, but it's, uh, it, that's a different one. That, that's our nice little aside there. And then back to the circadian yeah. rhythm. Yeah, let me and, get back to the blue yeah. light here for a second. So, so another big distinction between sunlight and indoor lighting is that, you know, you get the full spectrum outdoors and people always ask me, you know, like, oh, well, if I'm getting blue light outside, why is it so wrong, wrong to get the blue light on my screens, right? And there's a, a few 
reasons why. One is indoor lighting, you're getting four times more blue light. Two, um, outdoors, you're getting the full spectrum. So you're getting more than just blue. And part of that is that 42% of sunlight is infrared, mm. right? So that's in the red spectrum. Now, infrared, uh, people probably know it's heat, right? That's why infrared saunas are hot. Um, and, and even if you can't see red light, if there's heat there, that's infrared, right? So even in a, in a dry sauna, like your barrel sauna, that heat that comes out of there, that's infrared light. Mm. Uh, but the thing that happens in nature that doesn't happen on your screen is this balance of blue and red. And the blue does some things and the red does other things, right? And one of the things that they, we now know about the infrared is that certain frequencies of infrared actually make ATP, right? So the certain wavelengths of, of infrared um, when it hits the fifth cytochrome in the mitochondria, it makes it spin faster and make more ATP. And this is 100% verifiable by many different studies. So one of the likely one of the mitigating factors when you're outside uh, from getting the blue light and having uh, your methylation affected or whatever is that you have this increase in ATP production to make up for that, right? And you're not getting that when you're inside. Another interesting little aside is, you know, everyone knows that we now have this, in most places we have laws that require the use of, quote, high efficiency light bulbs. Mm. Well, the reason that they're high efficiency is because they take out the heat, right? So they... You know, if you remember back in the olden days, like when we were kids, uh, if, if a light bulb and a lamp just burned out and you go to replace it with your hand, you're going to burn your hand, right? Uh, but with the newer light bulbs that don't have the heat, right? As soon as you turn that light bulb off, you can touch it and it's not hot. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I never touch them because I don't want to burn my hand. Yeah. That's, that's, that's true, huh? Like the... the um... LED, uh, long lasting, whatever it says on the box. These are the, they, they, they stay cool. Yeah. And so what's the drawback? Is it removing the UV? Uh, no, it's okay. So it's removing, um, the infrared, right? Uh, and, but that's a good point also is that when you're out, when you are indoors, you're not getting UV and UV does a lot of good too. It makes a uh, UVB makes vitamin D gives you a suntan and um, I'm forgetting what uh, there's another health benefit of UVA. I cannot remember what it is, but uh, UVA is also good. UVA is the one that's dangerous to uh, get exposed to for no, that's, melanoma that's U- and things, but in, no, that's in UVC, isn't it? Oh. Um, I know UVC is like highly dangerous. That's the one that they use to sterilize stuff in the hospital and stuff. <laughs> so the, um, the, the light experience, if we can do the best, we're going to get out there in the sunlight in the morning. And then during the workday, um, I guess, try to obtain sources of natural light rather than strictly uh, you know, fluorescent artificial light, which are m- more intense. They're going to strain the eyes 
It's been associated with macular degeneration, years and years of staring at screens. Yep. Not, not so with being outdoors in the sun. Uh, but then when we get to uh, sunset is when we really have to take uh, massive corrective action if we want to stay healthy, huh? Well, you want to, so if you're referring to indoor lighting, yeah, you don't, you don't want to have a bunch of stimulating light after sunset. Um, but it's also, it's actually good to, to um, uh, get evening sunshine after, you know, around sunset that those wavelengths are really healing. Um, as a general rule, what happens is over the course of the day is that the most blues in the morning. And then as the day goes on, there's less and less blue. And that mirrors exactly what your melatonin is supposed to do, right? Mm. You're supposed to have very low melatonin in the morning when there's the most blue light. And then as the day progresses, there's less blue light and more melatonin. Uh, then it kind of tees us up for a graceful uh, transition into a mellow evening and then falling asleep and having melatonin work its magic. And um, the listeners are probably aware that melatonin is the, the hormone that makes you feel sleepy and drowsy and, and lowers body temperature, lowers respiration, gets you ready for a good night's sleep. It's also a hugely important antioxidant. So it has a ton of other functions besides just just uh, making your uh, your eyelids feel heavy, uh, but we are messing everything up with the uh, high intensity indoor lights, especially after dark. So, um, you want to talk about some strategies there to to uh, to be more like dude with the with the orange bulbs and the salt lamps and the glasses. Yeah. So so during my work day, I, I do have a salt lamp like next to my desk, um, just to balance out the blue, just to have some red to balance out the blue. And then after, after sunset. So here, let me see if I can show you here, here, it's pretty dark out. It's not, it's not quite dark. It's 8 PM. Um, but I've already got my indoor red lights on and these are 25 watt um, incandescent red bulbs that uh, I got on Amazon. I can, I can give back the link so that if people want it, they can get it. But um, they're just simple red bulbs. Those, those are incandescent. So if you touch those, they are hot. Um, oh, okay. So the incandescent is the recommendation. Yeah. Uh, so we want to go back to um, an infrared emitting bulb that's uh, putting out an orangish, reddish, yellowish hue rather than the, the, the bright white. Yeah. So a blue light. Yeah. So, um, about 500 nanometers is the, the cutoff for, um, affecting melatonin. And, um, I forget where, where, uh, red starts. Um, I think it's, I think it's a little, little higher than that, but 500, 550 is actually better. 550 is what a lot of the, the experts um, recommend. And if you get some of the glasses like raw or blue blocks, those all block um, uh, 550 and below. Oh, right. The, um, the juve light and the red light therapy devices are recommending that you go in this uh, range of 650 somewhere around there, a nanometer. Right. So that's why uh, that's the therapeutic 
uh, intensity of the, the red light. So when you said 550 or anything, blocking anything below that, that's the blue light that you want right. to uh, kind of do away with as soon as the sun sets. Right. And, and I actually, like a lot of people wear blue blockers at night. And um, I, I have some and I do wear them occasionally, but I actually have my environment set up so that I don't have to have them. So I have the red lights. I can still read with the red light. Um, I have a, a red light or a blue light filter that makes my screen look red or orange on the computer. Right. I have the same thing on my TV. So if I want to watch uh, some TV before I go to bed, I have a filter on my TV that turns the screen orange. What the heck? Is that a, a an actual filter that mounts over the screen or do you have some technology no, a, built into the screen? No, it's a it's a device. It's called the it's called Drift TV. Wow. And it's it's just a little device that's I don't know, it's about the size of uh two packs of cigarettes maybe. Analogy, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what else to say. And uh you it you plug it um, in between the, the video source and the TV, right? So if you've got a cable box or whatever, you get the HDMI cable coming out of your cable box, you plug it into this thing, and then you on the other side, you plug another HDMI cable and plug that into your TV. And it, and it's, it has a timer, right? So you can set the, the timer so that it filters the blue uh, starting at whatever time I think I have mine set for 7 p.m. And uh, you can also a- adjust how much blue you want to filter, mm-hmm. right? So when I was I was married and my family would complain about this kind of stuff, I had it kind of kind of mild, so it wasn't quite filtering so much. But now that I got my own place, I, it's just like you watch my TV at night; it's orange. <laughs> well, the um, the computer ones like Flux and Iris Tech, you can barely even notice them, and it's very pleasant. And when you compare back to a a super high intensity uh, regular emission, and uh, with the Iris Tech software, they have some good informative videos where they talk about turning up the. You got to turn the brightness up all the way on your laptop or desktop screen and then use their software to block blue light. Because if you turn the brightness down, like a good citizen where you're thinking that you're you know, having a more mellow light source coming off your laptop, what's happening is they're doing these uh, rapid fire flickers of uh, reducing the intensity of the light by, by flickering and, and doing something that's sub, uh, subconscious, you know, hitting you with a, a very offensive light source, but you can't tell. It just seems like your screen's less bright and therefore good. So the instructions are, please turn your thing up all the way to maximum brightness and then activate the software. So it's interesting to kind of learn. Um, and, and this stuff is, it's a pretty serious health offense because if you disrupt melatonin at night, like you described in the morning, you're going to wake up and you're, you're going to feel like crap because you didn't get a good night's sleep and the serotonin's not kicking in because you've messed up the hormonal processes, the circadian functions. Yeah, if you're so as you as you well know from being a, a triathlete, if you're working out but you're not getting your sleep, you're not getting the benefit of the workout. Right? You're you don't grow during the workout. You grow during the recovery from the workout. 
And if you're not, if you're not getting good recovery, then you might as well not work out. This is a funny one because I think we're so knowledgeable and informed now about the importance of sleep. I haven't spoken to anybody who is going to challenge any of the crazy assertions. If you, if you go on for an hour, everyone's going to nod their head in general, right? But then in, in uh, practical terms, you know, what's happening is even though we all know how important it is, I think we're making that uh, devil sacrifice at night, going for that dopamine hit in the case of good programming that we deservedly get to kick back and watch and maybe throw down some popcorn after such a busy, stressful, hardworking day, which is well-deserved and part of enjoying life. But it seems like we're constantly at war with um, our values and respecting the importance of sleep and then how we actually execute. Man, it is, you know, I preach this stuff all the time and I teach an online class where I teach people how to implement this stuff and more in their, in their lives. And uh, I would agree, like, even for me, um, sometimes uh, getting to bed on time and getting the proper sleep and I, I, I don't have any problem keeping the lights down and keeping my place red. I do that. Uh, but yeah, every once in a while, if I got, if I have friends over or, you know, I'm watching a TV show or something, yeah, it's very, or work these days, uh, working from home, you know, nobody wants to be that guy who proves to be dispensable because <laughs> G, he's not getting enough done at, at, while he's working from home. Right. So boy, I never thought about that angle of the remote working where you, you got to prove yourself more than maybe when you're the friendly guy saying hello to everyone at work and being on, on good terms and everyone sees you. <laughs> now they're only seeing your work output. So it's like everyone's exposed. The, the glad handers in the workplace are now being exposed, huh? I think there's, I don't know if it's, if it, that happens that way, but I certainly feel like, uh, you know, and, and I think there's a competition to it uh, also, right? Because, you know, I get an email at 10 o'clock at night from somebody I'm like, oh, crap, man, he's working until 10 o'clock at night. Oh, I don't want to be the only guy that's not working until 10 o'clock at night. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot that plays into it. But point is, I find myself, uh, you know, up later than I should. And, um, you know, it takes it takes effort and dedication to, to, to actually implement this stuff uh, into an effective daily practice, for sure. Yeah, I guess for me, the payoff comes in the morning because I really want to feel energetic and motivated and uh, happy and in a good disposition in the morning. And so, you know, after enough times where you make that trade in the evening and you feel like crap in the morning. Uh, I'm hoping that, you know, continues to push me into having that strong discipline to know that whatever you're watching, especially nowadays, I mean, in the old days, you know, your favorite show, David Letterman comes on at 11 and he has a great guest on tonight. Jim Carrey is going to go crazy. Uh, and that's the only time you're ever going to get to see it. Now, come on, everybody can push a button and uh, pick up where we left off the next night. So it's, it's sort of easier than ever, even though maybe it's more tempting than ever. It's right. easier than ever to stay, uh, stay on schedule and not miss out. Yeah. 
for for me, it's it's really the social aspects. I'm I'm very extroverted, and I, you know, I like to hang out with my friends and uh, talk about health and wellness and whatever else. And uh, you know, it's easy for me to uh, to stay out a little bit too late with my friends, but with the uh, the quarantine. Um, I, I haven't watched TV in years. I really, I, there's like no shows that I actually watch, right? The only thing I really use TV for is sports. Um, but with the quarantine, I'm actually finding myself like, oh, somebody told me that this Netflix show is good. I'm going to check that out. So I've watched a little bit more. Oh, mercy. This is the first time I've really been a uh, an evening TV watcher in, in 20 years because I've been too tired, uh, especially having kids and coaching sports and trying to squeeze things in, uh, you know, in different uh, phases of life. And I, I, I enjoy it. I, I have a really uh, discriminating taste, which I think is a great idea to, you know, give something a chance. If it's not great or fantastic, there's so many other options you can move on. Totally. And I think there's a lot of interesting adjustments we've made uh, to the, you know, the high complexity of, of daily life that we had before, where now I think if we have a positive attitude, we can appreciate certain aspects of just having things more, more patterned and uh, predictable and perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps some benefits, of course, the tremendous cost and the destruction of the economy is, is heartbreaking and so many people are suffering. But I'm wondering your reflections, like when we uh, theoretically pull out of this someday, are we going to take some of the positive aspects of it and carry it forward? I sure hope so. I mean, I know from my own personal experience, you know, I've described the, the changes in my um, one hour breaks and stuff, which have been really great. I get to have uh, midday sun walking around my apartment building. I mean, I, that's all great. Um, there are instances when I do feel like being in the office would be a little bit more productive. Um, it's got to collaborate on projects or whatever. Um, but in a kind of a broader sense, another thing that's really happened is um, there's, I think there's been a slight restoration of work-life balance. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we're all, everyone in my company, we're all working, we're all teleconferencing and, and um, collaborating online together and have online tools and whatnot. But there's been a real um, uh, expectation that people are at home. They have to take care of their loved ones, their kids, their elderly parents, their um, invalid family member. You know, like everyone's got somebody that they need to take care of and uh, or other things in their life that they need to, to do. And so there's been like this whole um, sort of uh, much more compassionate approach to what people are dealing with in their personal life uh, and an acceptance that, you know what, there are things that are more important than uh, business travel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that part's been really nice. And then the, the flip side of that is, oh, Joe has been taking care of his sick father uh, during the day. And so he gets a lot of work done at night when his sick father's sleeping. And that's why he sends you emails at 11 p.m. 
Yeah, I think that uh, ability to have a little more control over your your workflow is is a positive for for many people. I know some people say that they like the structure of jumping in the car, commuting, the familiarity of stopping at the Starbucks, getting your routine going. Uh, but I, I guess it depends on the personality. Like some people are probably uh, really, you know, clicking into that uh, self-starting mode and that freedom to go out and do 35 push-ups uh, every hour and all those kind of things that work for you that you said are frankly kind of difficult, even in a progressive workplace in Austin. It would probably seem a little weird if you had a kettlebell in the corner and you were grunting while people were typing away 12 feet away. Yeah, although I will say, um, so uh, Verbo actually has two offices in Austin. And one of them's, uh, we actually have three buildings. Two of them are right next to each other. That's where I work. And then there's another one all the way across town. And um, I had a meeting there one time. And that place is actually a call center mostly. And I went in there one, one day and I noticed like upstairs on the balcony over off in the corner where there isn't a lot of traffic, there was uh, some mats and some foam rollers and, uh, you know, like it was like a little, uh, uh, you know, like rollout station in just right there in the middle of the office. So who knows, maybe my kettlebell won't be so out of place after all. Yeah. You can take your chance when you return to work, you bring your, bring all that home energy. All right, dude, spellings. We hit it hard, man. Thanks for covering some fun, interesting topics. Yeah. Thanks for having me. As always, it's, it was a lot of fun. We'll check back soon. We'll, we'll start stacking up the topics and uh, keep in touch. Say hi to everybody in Austin. I gotta make I gotta make one plug. Numbers. I gotta make one plug real quick. Yeah, man. So um, I mentioned the NTHFR and the homocysteine and all that from Blue Light. What really moved the needle in lowering my homocysteine was uh, um, uh, Brian Johnson's ancestral sum- supplements beef liver. It's the only thing that moves the, liver, the needle for me on the homocysteine. Beef the liver. most nutrient dense, probably the most nutrient dense supplement on the whole planet. Yeah, and uh, we've been talking about Mofo, which is got so popular it sold out as soon as it was released. But it's coming back soon, and that uh, that chance for male optimization and to nourish those uh, reproductive organs and your entire sexual function with the exact nutrients that are needed is really exciting to me. So I'm glad you you mentioned that. We're big fans, and well, okay, I'm gonna plug I'm gonna plug Mofo also. Because I, I, I've taken, I've, I've done two bottles and uh, I can tell a difference. I can definitely tell a difference in, uh, you know, my, my male reproductive areas. It's, it makes a difference. I'm also a big fan of the, uh, the, the collagen supplementation, which I'm kind of late to the bandwagon, but uh, Primal Collagen, of course, sponsoring the show and... Uh, you know, I've, I've sat on the sidelines and even read the scripts or, uh, you know, touted it. But um, looking more into the research for the most recent book I did uh, with this, and, uh, and he's a huge fan of collagen. I mean, he started the, the category with one of the first products. And um, 
you know, there's, there's some pretty good rationale to take 30 grams a day for the rest of your life because it's so difficult to obtain unless you're eating a bunch of gristle and, and drinking mugs of bone broth every single day. And it has such broad application in the body as Dr. Kate Shanahan details very well in her books that, you know, skin, hair, nails, connective tissue, and the health of your connective tissue being directly correlated with longevity. Because when that stuff falls apart, then you can't exercise, you can't put the energy out, you start to get a loss of muscle mass, sarcopenia, which is one of the huge uh, factors in accelerated demise, uh, losing your balance, falling, the number one cause of accident and death in Americans over age 65. So uh, that's high on my, on my supplement list too right now. All right, one more, one more last plug. Yeah, we're on, okay. the, on the supplement part of the show, people. Yeah, so, um, so I think I told you, did I tell you I broke my leg in February? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's already healed, he says. Oh, it, I've been, <laughs> I, I was running within four weeks, but, wow. uh, but um, it was on a ski trip and um, I took this fall where my knee got all twisted up and I actually heard a pop. Oof. And I thought for sure I tore my ACL, right? My knee was all twisted and I thought, oh man, I, I, and, and I've heard like, when that happens, you hear a pop. Uh, and I thought, oh, I, I know I, I that, heard that pop. It's, I, I bet it, I bet I tore something. And, uh, turns out I, I had a, a, uh, um, uh, I forget what they call it, but it's, uh, it's actually where the tendons pull so hard on the bone that the, the, the bone breaks. So, Oof. so the, point is is that the collagen i've been taking the the primal um kitchen collagen that i've been taking uh i think made a difference that i instead of tearing that soft tissue i broke a bone instead which is much easier to heal right that's you'd rather have that same with the ankles i remember turning my ankle uh getting taken out in eighth grade basketball scrimmage and no joke it took a year for that thing to get back to, uh, you know, near normal. And of course a bone would have been, uh, you know, six weeks in a, in a boot and then it's all gone. So, all right, good plug. We're, we're getting everybody, we're getting everybody focused. Thanks dude Spellings. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no-dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo-certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.